Hello again, everyone. Dr. Stewart and I would like to welcome our Autism One Radio listeners. In our first show, which you can listen to on the Autism One Radio archive page, we discussed my son Jake's history and progress toward recovery under the care of Dr. Stewart. We also introduced our listeners to a new concept called the Coordinated Care Model, for which the parent and physician team work together in this journey. Today, we will discuss how we can use laboratory biomarkers as a roadmap to guide diagnosis and treatment of the neuroimmune disorders. We have also received several questions from our listeners on the last show, which we'd like to answer, and also we wanted to thank you for sending those to us. So we'll be discussing Jake's progress in the past month, and I have an interesting story to share about our experience. So with that, let's get started. Hello, Dr. Stewart. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Good. Very well. So let's start from the initial appointment, Dr. Stewart, and if you can, describe Jake's clinical presentation um, when we came in to see you. And um, I know you've, uh, you've had some, um, some experiences with the last few appointments uh, with the stimming and the speaking and, and monitoring those types of symptoms. But if you can, I guess, uh, go backward and then we'll work forward. Okay, well, uh, Lisa, first of all, let me, um, let me get you to tell us about Jake when you first uh, came to see us, okay? Well, I remember we could not make it into the waiting room for very long, so we had to take several trips out to the parking lot, and we walked all around the building Okay. Uh, because he was a little overwhelmed being in a closed area, and this was, what, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. He was um, stimming quite a bit, which was hand-flapping, um, jumping on your furniture in your waiting room, he was not verbal. Uh, he, I think, he, I, I should say, he knows how to speak, but he was not speaking unless he was prompted. Uh, he didn't look at you. He didn't look at anyone in the waiting room. He barely looked at us, and he had a lot of sensory issues. Um, I remember when you asked us to go into the uh, testing room and we started to do some of the testing on Jake, I thought, oh, this is not going to happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very typical first appointment. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Well, good. Um, well, you know, obviously, um, Lisa, your story is not unusual. In fact, um, uh, the blessing of the practice that we typically have is that we get to see kids of all um, different severities, uh, everybody from the most severe of autistic uh, spectrum disorders all the way through the very mild ones with maybe a little learning disability or dyslexia or central auditory processing. Um, obviously, the most challenging is always the ones that we're here mostly talking about, which is the most severe uh, autism uh, issues. And Jake was certainly not um, um, unusual for that. So really, when we go about evaluating a child uh, from the beginning, uh, the first thing we really want to know is we want to spend a lot of time listening to the parent. And unfortunately, many of us doctors are just ready to kind of listen and then move on and get straight to the workup because they're uh, assuming that the um, the testing that we're going to do is going to define the problem for us and we'll just get to the treatment. Now, uh, that's been a disadvantage for me. And the reason is, is because what we've learned uh, through looking at the way the nervous system develops is that when we're trying to heal these children, uh, we have to understand the timing of interruption. And not only understand it from a purpose of when the child's uh, development got stalled, but we also have to understand where we need to go back to and what we need to expect from a timing of recovery from these children. So if you don't sit down and spend enough time talking to the parent and understanding the validity uh, or um, seriousness of the, the interruption or the cause of interruption, then you certainly are 
uh, discrediting uh, the um, workup for these children. And so we spend a lot of time talking to the parent. Now, obviously, when you deal with uh, doctors who are typically specialized in this area, you know, we've got a big controversy in the, the medical community about what causes, you know, autism. And um, certainly, uh, the more you listen to parents, the more parents uh, typically are convinced, for the most part, that there was some type of inflammatory uh, trigger to the uh, spectrum disorder. Many times that's vaccine-induced. I have seen um, this be induced by hospitalizations, by illnesses, by traumas, by even surgical interventions in the first couple of years of life. But in general, you want to spend a lot of time understanding what really got that person into problems. And sometimes you'll find out that there's actually dual triggers, meaning that there is two things that happen concurrently because a stimulus of inflammation is important. Mm -hmm. Now, we also want to understand, and we spend a lot of time talking with you about this, and we spend a lot of time talking to every patient uh, and parent in particular about this, about the develop the normal development of the nervous system, okay? So, you know, your touch and feel develops essentially at birth. You touch a newborn baby and they move. And visual system, your eyes are seeing at birth, but you're not using your visual system because the optic nerves have not myelinated enough. And so it's usually about two to three months when they finally start tracking and looking at you and making sure that uh, while well, they're following you across the room and then about nine months into it you'll see a child typically starting to pull up and sit up and starting to use the preliminary vestibular information that they need for their three-dimensional control and then in the uh, 12 to month 18 month mark you'll use the vestibulo-ocular reflex where you use the inner ears and the eyes in a coordinated fashion to learn how to keep your eyes still and then between uh, 18 and 24 months, you'll typically have a child become more coordinated at their walking and their fluidity of movement in normal development. Now, the reason I went through all of that is because <clears throat> the timing of interruption defines not only what caused it and what was the most likely initiating trigger, but also defines where we have to go back to and assume that we have to fix because what happens in these children from the diagnostics that we can see is that they've just been interrupted. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I don't want to harp so much on this history, but it is very important to gather an important history in the children. We also want to understand this from a speech development standpoint too, because if you can't get the vestibulo-ocular reflex and the vestibulo-spinal reflex in relative functionality, the brain essentially will not be released to develop the fine motor skills necessary for speech processing. Okay. So you typically interrupt a child before two years of age, and usually they'll regress back to nonverbal or be right on the cusp of uh, development, okay? Yeah, Jake had, um, I estimate, about 20 words by 18 months. Um, but I, you know, when we came in to see you, I really struggled with trying to pinpoint the exact time where he started to regress. Uh, some parents said that they had an immediate reaction to a vaccine or an antibiotic or something where they had um, their child actually had a seizure or um, had a um, pretty significant um, episode of something um, where the child regressed immediately. And we unfortunately had regression over, I'd say, 6 to 12 month period, which mm -hmm. a lot of things happen in that time. Uh, one thing, and I, you've heard this story, but I'll tell our listeners, that we kept vaccinating Jake. In fact, it never once crossed my mind that uh, we should be suspicious of the vaccines. In fact, I know I've heard you talk about the live viruses before, and he had the MMR and the varicella vaccines mm -hmm. together, um, the DTaP, and 
what we started seeing was frequent strep infections, frequent ear infections, and then began the antibiotics. So sure. amoxicillin was given to him at least six times in the first year. Uh, I'm sorry, from probably a year old to two years old. But during that space of time, he lost the skills that he had learned. In fact, yeah, I, as you were talking through all the stages of development, I was thinking about how he did begin walking early. In fact, he walked upright. He had perfect balance. Sure. Um, then when he started the regression, he started walking with an abnormal gait and mm -hmm. leaning to one side. And uh, just his sensory system was just seemed so skewed. I mean, he, he, had, he needed a lot of deep pressure touching. He needed a lot of um, stimming with his fingers and his hands. And yeah, so he so he lost his ability to use the vestibular it, yes. So he had to go to a touch and feel mm -hmm. dominated world. Right. And you know, unfortunately, the ears and the eyes are intimately connected. So when your vestibular system doesn't work, neither does your vision. And so you're only left then with your touch and feel world. And that's why these kids are so uh, proprioceptively seeking. Mm -hmm. And so you know, understanding that from a simple concept uh, makes you understand why the children are the way they are. You also makes you understand that really what I keep harping on in the absence of seizure disorder. So obviously if the brain's having seizures that are intractable or significant, you've probably got, you've got irritation of the brain. So, mm -hmm. but in the absence of seizure disorder, which is not as common as one would think in this, in this realm, um, you really have a normal brain that's responding appropriately to what it's being fed. So that's what's so confusing for most people because everybody wants to label this in general as a mental illness or a psychiatric illness, but the brain is actually doing what's appropriate for what it's being told. The problem is, is the consistency. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that you pointed out, the slow regression of Jake and an instantaneous regression that you see in other children, those are no different. And the reason I say they're no different is that inflammation is the cause of the problem. When you inflame a nerve, whether you inflame it very rapidly and set off a seizure, or whether you inflame it very slowly and progressively, it still becomes dysfunctional mm -hmm. and doesn't carry information accurately. And so it really doesn't change the, the progression of the disease necessarily or the progression of the syndrome but uh, certainly uh, you're still dealing with an inflammatory overload in a system that's immunologically either not prepared for these infectious agents or is over-responsive in its ability to inflame things. And, you know, you'll hear me say over and over, and my patients probably get sick of it, but um, inflammation is the enemy of healing. And if you don't stop inflammation, you have not taken the first step to healing anything in the body. And the nerves are no different. You know, what's really amazing is before we started uh, seeing you, I was convinced that Jake had, and I, I will say the caveat here is that I was convinced by other doctors that Jake had a psychological, neurolo neurological, or um, a sensory disorder. Mm -hmm. None of them defined autism as an, a medical disorder. Mm -hmm. And the reason we started to see you, uh, quite frankly, was uh, you had uh, you had a specialty that I had been told of neurosensory, and I thought, well, Jake's definitely a sensory kid. We've got to take him to see Dr. Stewart. Little did I know that as we started down the path of the laboratory biomarkers, we would uncover, you would uncover, the dysfunction in his immune system. Sure. And I remember the day that I got the phone call mm -hmm. that um, he gave me the results on the phone, and 
I was embarrassed because initially because I thought, wow, I've had 15 years in the lab background, you know, with a laboratory background. I've done lab testing on every member of my family, including myself. That was the farthest thing from my mind with Jake. I never thought to do some of the lab biomarkers that you ordered. In fact, heavy metals was new to me. Right. And so I remember when I went down, uh, when I looked at all the things that were wrong with him. You know, he had a poor immune function with uh, you know, the T cells, and you talk a lot about mm-hmm. that, um, with the high pathogen load, the, the uh, urine toxicology screen with the seven metals that he had, and then multiple food allergies. I was just standing there in shock thinking, this can't be my child. Surely they mixed up the blood work because I can't, I don't think that my child is this sick medically. And um, it was something that, um, you know, I've heard you say a lot of times before that autism is a multifactorial disorder. It's a very complicated disorder. And I just wasn't prepared for all of the abnormal biomarkers. Um, But I will say once I got over the initial shock of seeing the test results, I did feel thankful because then I knew, okay, we're on to something. We know what's wrong. So then I said, Dr. Stewart, how are we going to fix this? Right. Well, we'll go back and I'll, I'll tell you what we um, looked at when Jake first came in. And you'll remember this well, that um, our analysis of um, most of these children, and I won't say all because I think if you say all, you certainly are, don't have enough experience in this mm-hmm. world because uh, you can always be throwing a curveball. But you know, the analysis in most of these children is, you know, I love the definition of a neuroimmune disorder. And that disorder means that we are um, rapidly becoming aware that because of the physiology that's required by both the immune system and the nervous system, that they're a lot more similar than we previously thought. And what I mean by similarities is that many of the nutritional elements, uh, the, um, uh, the transport elements, the communication elements uh, between the two systems are very similar. And in fact, I think somewhere, hopefully in the future, we may actually dis- define them or describe them as one in the same system, okay? And that sounds kind of funny from this day and age because we've separated it so much, but they are intimately associated with each other. So the problem is, is that in general, the way that we understand at in this point in time, um, the spectrum disorders and how they uh, are def- um, produced is that we have uh, a spectrum disorder which is just a bunch of symptoms okay so I'm not a big fan of defining kids on the spectrum scale okay and that's just because there's no objectivity to it meaning that you walk into 10 different doctors you might depending on the day you walk in there you might get 10 different answers so and the the only reason I'm a little bit amiss with using the autistic spectrum scale is because the intent of that scale is to not define the child from a diagnostic perspective, it's to intent to treat the symptom, Mm -hmm. okay? So we're gonna give him a diagnosis of ADD because this is the medicine we're gonna give him to treat the symptom, okay? So that's why I'm a little bit um, cautious with using those diagnoses. Uh, The second thing is is that we are very aware, um, actually some research that we've done here using the devices that we use, the sensory uh, testing, uh, that 100% of these kids, and I think I can say that very clearly, have, uh, if they have an autistic spectrum disorder that's uh, significant, we do see abnormalities on their sensory uh, integration scale. So sensory integration and autistic spectrum are, in essence, the same disorders, which should make common sense. 
the worse you feed the brain information, the worse it functions, okay? And so please don't, you know, I hope I didn't make anybody offended by that comment, but uh, clearly we want to have something that we can treat. So I will talk sensory integration a lot because it defines the status of the, the uh, information being fed to the brain. So when we first saw Jake, we we looked at his sensory systems, and we did see that there was a, va a massive um, uh, integration problem, and I don't think it was too hard for us to show you at the time. Um, we found on, on paper, it was very <laughs> evident. Yeah, and obviously what our system is unique for is taking the complicated information from these neurodiagnostic tests and giving them graphic interfaces that's pretty easy for anybody to read. Mm -hmm. So we could see that his vestibular systems or his inner ears were both functioning at different levels, meaning that they were not equal. So you weren't comparing apples to apples to find the middle of your world. You were comparing an apple to an orange. We did find a significant abnormality in his right um, vestibular nerve. So it's kind of like having a perfect mouse that's not plugged in. <laughs> so uh, you can have a great mouse, but if it's not plugged in, it doesn't control the computer very well. So we got to check the sensor itself, which is the inner ear or the eye, and we got to check the nerve that's carrying the information to the brain, and then we got to provide consistency to the brain. So when we looked at the consistency of information being sent to Jake's brain, we could see that it was massively um, uh, fluctuant. So Jake had no ability to figure out how to put it all together. And, you know, I'll make a point right there about that. We had spent five years of therapy um, and I, I certainly think behavioral therapies are wonderful. Speech therapies are wonderful. But I will say we spent so many hours with speech therapy, ABA, VBA, uh, floor time, rapid prompting, all sure. of the therapies. But the problem was he wasn't, and I'm saying it in my parents' term, of course, he wasn't hearing what he needed to hear to be able to process it. Or maybe he heard it, but he couldn't process it. So I look back on that and I think, gosh, what would it, what would Jake have been like had we been able to diagnose this um, neurosensory disorder earlier before we started all the therapy? Now I will say, now that we've been recovering that system, the therapy we're getting a huge bang for our buck right. because he's just he's talking and he's just making huge strides. Um, but I I just wonder how many parents um, you know, haven't looked at this possibly. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that um, we got um, the University of Texas has recently formed a, an autism program, and uh, the professors that are running it are, are ABA specialists. Mm -hmm. And incident, incidentally, the, one of the professors is a postural analysis specialist, too. And so they actually approached us, and we're going to do a pilot study. Um, basically, looking at that simple answer was when we take a child uh, and we analyze where their sensory integration is at the specific time of starting the ABA uh, intervention or any of the therapeutic interventions, what's the outcome of it and how do we modulate it? Because really when, when you look at um, biomedical intervention, uh, you're not going to cure a child directly through biomedical intervention. You need a team of specialists to cure a child. Mm -hmm. Because the biomedical intervention is aimed at uh, fixing the genetic abnormalities, overcoming the infective, uh, opportunistic uh, status of the body, uh, providing nutritional and uh, supplemental um, nutritional elements to stabilize the healing and also the immunological standpoint of these children. And then the entire purpose of that whole process is to stabilize the child so that they're the same child every day from a nervous system standpoint and there's no fluctuation. Mm -hmm. 
And once you stabilize them, you still don't have a cured child because then you've got to get therapy to make them use the systems that they didn't use in Absolutely. the first place. Because I feel like now that we have been recovering his immune system, now we're making up for lost time. Correct. And so, but and he's making up for it. I mean, he is such a champ. He is just on a roll now. He, he's, I can tell he's working so hard to regain the speech that he lost and to try to read and to try to make sense of all the things that probably were jumbled in his brain for right. so many years. And so that's the way that uh, we really feel like this whole coordinated care model mm -hmm. between the parent, the primary physician, the doctor who's going to take responsibility for it, and then obviously interacting with all the other specialists that are involved in caring for these children. So our, my simple job is defined as I stabilize uh, the nervous system and the immune system, um, make it as stable and as consistent as I can, and then get them to the right therapist at the right time to get them progressed back to normal. And if you use that coordinated application uh, and don't feel like that, you know, the behavioralists are arguing with the educators or arguing with the the occupational therapists or arguing with the biomedical interventionalists, you then you're going to have a much better time taking care of these kids. And I think that's why we've been so successful in this this model. Well, and as you know, I've told all of Jake's teachers and therapists that we see you, mm -hmm. and I've given them your name and number. Some of them have kids that have ADD and are on the spectrum sure. and have their kids seen by you. But I remember um, last year the teacher asked, um, well, so Jake's been really um, you know, stimming a lot in the classroom. Uh, is he taking his medicine? To which I responded, uh, what medicine would you be referring to? And she said, well, my daughter's on ADD medicine, so um, I'm just curious what medicine you have him on. I said, we don't have Jake on medicine. I said, we, we did. We used to see um, a neurologist, and we had him on behavioral controlling medicine until we went to Dr. Stewart and found that Jake has a medical disorder with um, impairment to his immune system. And as I started talking to her, uh, she became much more educated on this, and I explained to her the importance of the diet and how we had to do supplements and how those were Jake's what she calls medicine, those were his medicines. And I said, so, uh, actually, and what we found out was um, in the therapy he had in the classroom, he was getting Skittles as a reinforcer, and it was the food color that right. was setting him off. So it was something pretty simple, but um, it was interesting because um, I, I know that I forever probably changed that teacher's way of thinking because now she thought of this as, wow, these parents are using other interventions besides a prescription medication to control behaviors. Um, and she will soon hopefully be a patient of yours. Well, so, I appreciate um, that. But um, anyway, um, back to Jake's chart. Yeah, so, so um, once we determine that, then you, what we can essentially sh see by our testing is we can see the evidence of infectious, um, inflammatory, um, I won't say damage, I'd say interference with the nervous system function. And the nervous system is not something that responds well to inflammation. And frankly, nothing in the body really does. Mm -hmm. So what we essentially then focus our therapeutics on is identifying to the best of our knowledge the infectious agents, opportunists, that tend to um, overwhelm these children with immune dysfunction. And so that can extend from viruses to yeast, uh, other fungal elements, to bacterial, to spirochetes, to pseudobacteria. I can just go down the list. and. Yeah. And obviously, uh, when you're treating these kids, you need to be aware of those because you do need to suppress those things. And certainly, I'm not going to sit here and criticize any doctor for their efforts to suppress those no matter how they go about doing it. But 
We also, at the same time, which has been the most important for us, is to define the severity of the immune dysfunction. Because even if I kill back viruses and yeast and limes or whatever we have in the, the mix, if I don't fix the immune system, so as soon as we stop killing it, it's going to come back again. And so viruses are absolutely notorious for that. And in the nervous system, I mean, we didn't pick them, but it just so happens that varicella, measles, and rubella are big nervous system infectious agents. And Isn't it HHV6 too? That HHV6 is huge. Now, HHV6, you have to be a little, you have to be a little cautious with because we have not found that in nerves very much. Now, we know it lives in nerves, but not in sensory nerves necessarily, okay? So what you're making a bad assumption about with viruses, and obviously I think most people would recognize me as the viral guy, mm-hmm. uh, is that we, we can't make a, a – um, we have to make a distinction between association and cause and effect. Okay, so as a, a significant neuroinflammatory effect, we can measure HHV6 in the – in the blood of these kids and they will be active and positive titers but the problem is with varicella uh, a little bit different animal a little bit different mechanism of uh, development uh, and activation and you have to remember that all these viruses party with each other i mean they don't party alone if one of them goes to the party it brings all of them with it and so just because you use that as a titer what you're not going to find out is that how much you really need to treat it and you can't use a titer to tell you how effectively you treated it Mm -hmm. So we usually like, and it's, it's a simple caveat, the nervous system is an electrical system. And so you have to measure how the electricity is going through it to know how well it's functioning. You can't measure it in a blood test. So that's the differentiation, and that's just a nerve doctor talking like a nerve doctor. So we, we certainly kill the offending agents or help the body assist in killing the offending agents back to the, we get the electrical signal consistent. And that's what we've been doing in Jake. Now, when we defined his immune system, we found a few problems uh, in the biomedical realm. And that was that his immune cells, his T cells in particular, were not as healthy as they should be in number or in uh, health. Okay. And if your T cells, which are your killer cells, essentially, are not um, functioning as well as they can, and you cannot kill viruses, bacteria, fungus, even cancer cells as well as you should, then the body has no, solu- no solution for that except to take the B cells, the allergic and inflammatory cells of the body, and send them through the roof, okay? And so that's why you get so many of these children developing such severe hyperallergic states. And Jake is a highly aller- allergic kid, um, from seasonal to environmental to food, um, in fact, his allergy report, I think, is about four pages long. Sure. And it's, um, it's overwhelming. Well, you know, and the problem is, is that when that B cell, you know, that's a purposeful movement by the body. We have these cells uh, called T suppressor cells that keep the B cells under wraps. But when you have damaged T cells, there's no way to keep those inflammatory allergic cells under wrap. And so the body is doing this on purpose. And you can try all the steroids and you can try all the antihistamines and you can try all the immune modulators you want. And you might improve it subtly for a short period of time, but you're not going to get control of it until you fix the T-cell side Mm -hmm. and let it control the system the way it's supposed to. So really, we kind of divide up therapeutics from a biomedical standpoint into short-term therapeutics, things we do to kind of get you past the crisis issue, which crisis in these kids can be six to nine months, okay? Mm -hmm. And then into long-term therapeutics, which are what are we missing 
uh, and where do we, uh, how do we keep this from happening again? And that's where the biomarkers, the biomarker issue has become such a critical issue because it puts the hard science into the, the understanding of this, the, the process because the biomarkers are chosen and are uh, specific for unique biochemical polymorphism uh, uh, abnormalities. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in my practice, typically, I use biomarkers a lot more than I use genetic testing because I can't treat a genetic test, okay? Because the penetrance of that abnormal genetic test can be variable even among family members in the same family. So you could show me an abnormal genetic test and the treatment could be uh, very different, even with the same genetic test based on the penetrance of the effect. And um, I remember we did leave your practice, not um, permanently at all, but we, we left to see a geneticist at one point last fall because I was determined that I wanted to see the, the complete map on Jake. I wanted to see mm -hmm. his genetic um, makeup, and I wanted to see... Uh, not only rule out fragile X, which is sure. the only known genetic cause of autism from what I've read, but I wanted to know were there polymorphisms, were there things that we were missing? Because I've read a lot of literature that there's various um, genetic deletions, insertions, mutations, et cetera, that can happen. So we spent quite a bit of money, if you'll recall, sure. and I brought in my binder and showed you all the genetic results. And at the end of the day... Um, it did not change our course of treatment or how you would treat him. And I will say, am I glad I did it? Yes. But my advice to parents, and actually I'm answering a parent question right now because a parent sent me an email saying, well, would you recommend we go down the path of doing a lot of genetic testing before we start with uh, biomarker testing? And I said, um, my response is to that, I would save your money. If uh, Fragile X, I think, is a given. You obviously want to rule out Fragile X in the beginning, which most neurologists even will do now. But I don't know how important it is to know every polymorphism that Jake has because it didn't change how you would treat him. Yeah, and don't don't get me wrong. Um, certainly, genetic testing has the knowledge is necessary, um, and certainly without the geneticists going through a lot of these analyses, and I'll tell you, the geneticists are missing a lot of them that we all know are in existence. Uh, you have to know the base information to know where to look for the biomarker. But once you've kind of gotten, taken over that leap and you're starting to see the same genetic abnormality in a, in a uh, reasonable number of these patients, then we have to find a biomarker in order to give us an, a, an idea of how severely that genetic abnormality has compromised the patient's situation. And I wanted to add one more thing. Um, uh, one of the labs that I that I talked to because I was seeking the best genetic lab in the entire United States and the one lab I found was Emory Genetics Laboratory and mm -hmm. they have a panel called the Autism Screening Panel where they will do this for parents. Um, however, if you go to their website, they specifically state on there that they're only, if I want to quote this correctly, they're only picking up 10 to 15% per percent of all autisms. So that tells me and we've known this for a long time in the, in the autism world, is autism is not genetic. It's epigenetic or it's Correct. genetic and protein uh, biomarkers that are at play here. And there's, and you explain it much better than I do, but um, the point is, is it's not a genetic disease. And we know we wouldn't have all of these kids in one generation. That's not enough time. Right. And, you know, the way we explain that, and I think that um, it's very important to understand that my thinking has transitioned in the last 10 years over that. You know, I used to think that, um, for um, 
no particular reason that anybody could develop uh, a neurosensory abnormality at any age. Um, it turns out that that's probably not true, even to the point where we're not just talking about autism, but we're talking about post-concussion syndrome or dizziness or vertigo or migraines, et cetera, that there is a genetic predisposition that gives you a higher risk of developing these neurosensory abnormalities. And that genetic predisposition doesn't just exist in these children, it exists in uh, a lot of times the majority of the members of the family. So, you know, here I am 45 and, uh, you know, there was ADD and ADHD back when I was a kid, you know, and uh, the problem is we know there's a whole lot more now. And when you really look at the difference, the genetics were still there. Those genetics were identical in the same people there, but it takes then a triggering event mm -hmm. of inflammation or of uh, compromise, a toxic event. I, you know, we could discuss that for a long time, but that triggering event then makes you essentially develop the process. So, frankly, even today, we aren't seeing all the ADD or ADHD or autism that we could frankly see if we pushed up the number of inflammatory events that we're exposing these children to. Now, the problem is we're probably exposing them to way too many inflammatory events very early in their life because we know that development's a time scale issue, mm -hmm. okay? And I don't think anybody sh should disagree with that, no matter who you are. So what we really are able to see is that we're just interrupting from an inflammatory process that cannot be reversed very well in specific genetic populations, um, an initiating event that stalls the nervous system development, and I think that's how you, we really need to focus at it. Now, um, that obviously takes us to the vaccine discussion, and um, you know, I certainly have my stance, and I have uh, certainly a lot of information and a lot of proof on my stance. And, um, uh, you know, it's, th those are going to be big issues because I think this biomarker issue is going to answer a lot of those questions for us. Because if we can identify these biomarkers and we can do screening even at a newborn level or in the first year of life, and we can identify these children who are at higher risk, we shouldn't be offending anybody who essentially doesn't have the biomarkers and they can go about normal uh, vaccination schedules or normal events without any interference from us uh, quote unquote crazy people. Okay. Well, and you know, I find that so interesting that we don't, we don't apply the same scrutiny to vaccines as we have to pharmaceuticals. Um, if you look at the whole exploding field of pharmacogenomics where um, we're really looking now at the genetics behind how people metabolize drugs. Uh, Tylenol, for example, some people are fine with one Tylenol. Some people take one. Uh, some people need four. Some people get hepatotoxicity. So, um, and I was reading that one in three Americans have adverse uh, drug reactions. Correct. But with vaccines, we've approached it basically from a one-size-fits-all, which I think is very errant. And I look at the CDC schedule and how it just expanded to now we're at 32 shots. Um, when you and I were growing up, I think we got five, maybe six shots. Um, and I'm, um, I look at that, but I also look at all the other things in our world. And I've met plenty of parents on my journey that said that they've never vaccinated their children and they still are seeing this, this neuroinflammation, they're seeing sure. autism or ADD. Um, but you look at our world, right? We have air pollution, water pollution, we have BPAs in plastics, we have microwave ovens, we have everything that we question now was it too much too soon? Because in the last what, 30 years even, we've had such technology gains and we like things in America fast and convenient. We like sure. to pop our little 
plastic BPA lined uh, microwave TV dinner and then have right, it five minutes. Know, the important part of that is that, you know, inflammation is additive. And that's why, you know, you have a child who has multiple infectious agents in them, let's say yeast and viral load and and let's just pick limes or let's pick, you know, um, you know, some abnormal bacterial floral flora issue and you know all those add to the inflammatory burden of the body and so you can't really separate it out into one cause they're all uh, uh, additive but certainly there ought to be things to minimize it especially in the people that are at high risk Mm -hmm. and so that risk issue and that risk analysis is the key to um, us gaining some semblance and credibility I think in the in the scientific world because we still have to follow the rules whether we like it or not of the scientific community to get buy-in from the powers that be and that's certainly where we um, we uh, stand meaning that uh, I don't think that if I had a discussion with a homeopath or a naturopath or a chiropractor or an MD that my stance would change I might choose different language to speak with each of them but certainly the, the stance and the understanding has to be the same, and we have to have some way to objectively verify it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And uh, certainly it's the stance we've taken on neurolo- you know, nervous system issues. In fact, I couldn't sit here and make the statements that I made without us having a tool to look at the nervous system appropriately mm-hmm. to see the problem. And, you know, we, that's a whole different discussion. But once we identified those problems in Jake, we were able to then... Um, start taking care of his infectious burdens, uh, knocking back. You certainly are not going to eradicate these infectious agents. You're essentially going to try to knock them back, and then if you fix the immune system, the immune system puts them in their place and kind of keeps them there. So in viruses, that's very simple. We all know we harbor chicken pox and measles if we've been exposed inside of our neurological tissues, and uh, as long as our immune system's healthy, they'll stay in there and won't bother us. Okay, but get into a problem and uh, stressed out, here they come. And everybody who's ever had a fever blister or canker sore or shingle or even some funny painful pimples uh, should understand that kind of stuff. Well, and what's interesting is for years um, before we sought biomedical treatment and sought uh, or found you, Jake wasn't sick. He was never sick. Um, you know, he uh, initially we had the strep, the chronic strep and ear infections when he was an infant and had the antibiotic round. But after that, um, I, once he began the regression and regressed into what we call autism, uh, he was never sick. Um, never sick, so it was almost like his immune system was in overdrive, right? <laughs> that's the kids I worry about. Yeah. So I always tell the parents, I worry about a child that's sick all the time. I worry about a child that's never sick mm-hmm. because it's not the infectious agent that makes you sick. It's your body's immune system attacking the infectious agent that makes you sick. So if you have a child that you think is unusually healthy, Usually you got a child who is T-cell compromised, so they can't mount an appropriate immunological response to an offending agent. Well, and so um, this is actually a good segue for my next, uh, my next topic, and that is mm-hmm. that um, Jake's been doing phenomenally well. We've had huge gains in speech and eye contact and focus um, until the last week of school. So starting around the end of May, his teacher called and said he's just really not acting like himself. He's very hyperactive. He seems to be emotional. He's doing a lot of stimming. And I have the kid that doesn't get sick, right? So the last thing on my mind is thinking that Jake has some kind of infection. Right. I thought he's having a regression. Right. 
So it was, it was enough for me to worry, and I brought him back in to see you. And uh, lo and behold, we find out that Jake has strep. Right. So the way he manifested that was not that he had a sore, sore throat or told me he didn't feel well. He wasn't lying on the couch with a fever like most kids with strep. Mm -hmm. He acted out um, with stimming and OCD behavior where he had to touch everything. And um, it was really unusual because that was the first time I'd ever experienced seeing a pathogen affect behavior like that. Right. Well, now you're going to drag me down the whole pandas route, I know. So. <laughs> I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> well, no, I understand that. Um, well, certainly um, there's, a, there's a couple of uh, good points, I think, to that, that discussion that you just mentioned. The first is what we've been doing with Jake is we've been, we ac actually identified some biomarkers that uh, showed that we had some insufficiencies and in specific um, uh, processing of vitamins and vitamin delivery. And um, so we've been treating him uh, with uh, uh, specific uh, targeted supplements to awaken or reawaken his T cells. Mm -hmm. So first of all, Jake could have harbored that um, strep for a long time, and it wasn't until all of a sudden his T cells reawakened that uh, the recognition of that was uh, in place. Okay, so we obviously did some strep titers on him, uh, ASO and um, and uh, anti DNA uh, B. Um, to essentially um, identify whether he had high titers to strep, and indeed he did. They were very high. Now, identifying those titers by definition doesn't give you a pandas syndrome, mm -hmm. okay? Because uh, clearly a, a beta hemolytic strep, which is just a specific form of strep, um, if you have an acute infection, you'll probably have high titers anyway. So the first step of action in that, just because... Um, it could have meant that he had an acute strep infection. It could have meant that he has had strep titers for a long time because we didn't check him before that. But when you start seeing OCD tendencies and all that, you start worrying about this whole uh, pandas issue. Well, and it was ticks too. So he sure. had this this peculiar tick where he, um, it was hard to explain, but he was jerking his head a little bit right. to each side. So with the, the autoimmune issue, um, quote unquote, and I'll tell you that I used to be a strong proponent of autoimmune, and I'm not anymore. Um, I, uh, I believe the body's immune system is smarter than, and is probably attacking a lot of things that we're just not aware of. Uh, and that's a whole other discussion. But I think that we had to, to honor him by treating him with an antibiotic, which we did. And uh, we are probably going to go back and recheck those titers. And obviously, if they come down fairly rapidly, then we may assume that they're a... Uh, more of a um, acute infection. If they don't come down, then we've got to make a decision for that. And the decision for that is trying to decide how you want to effectively go after that. Now, eradicating the strep in an immunocompromised or an immuno uh, poorly competent individual is not going to be accomplished with a single therapy. So the, the key to the whole process of dealing with PANDAS or any of these other infectious agents is to fix the immune system because mm -hmm. there's nothing that does it better. So with that being said, you want to still continue to modulate the immune system to recovery, but uh, then you get into the whole discussion of IVIG versus um, long-term antibiotics versus uh, even some immune modulation that's uh, a negative issue in my opinion in this population. But I don't think there's a hard answer for it. And um, 
I certainly think that there's other ways that we can describe uh, tick behavior and other ways that we can describe obsessive compulsive tendencies So, because so, we certainly see that all the time without having positive titers. Mm -hmm. But I do think that uh, Jake will define himself. Now, with that being said, IVIG makes me a little nervous. Um, it's a pooled uh, serum population. Um, and uh, there are certainly people who have massive immunoglobulin deficiencies where we're, we're resigned ourselves to the fact that we need to treat with IVIG. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hard to get. Um, it's expensive. Um, and I think if you're not targeting a specific thing, you might be disappointed in what you're really getting. Mm -hmm. uh, so the answer is still not out there. But I think the answer really in the long term for PANDAS that will really be a true answer uh, is that if we can modify the T cells to take the B cells um, and get them back under control, you should reduce the titers over time and actually reverse the pandas tendency. Well, and the best thing about our show every month is we uh, we have a listening audience that will will get to follow along with Jake's progress and recovery with us. Uh, so they'll hear about all. Yeah, of my, we'll probably uh, hear about it. <laughs> my ups and downs. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like we take two steps backwards before we can take one step forward, but. You know, I always tell, um, hear parents say that autism is a marathon and it's not a sprint. And um, even though I was discouraged by all the progress he had up until the end of May and then this, this um, kind of a, a backward regression with uh, the strep, I haven't at all lost my enthusiasm for the track that he's on and for the healing of his immune system. And um, so with that, I know we, uh, we have a few more minutes, but... Um, I wanted to um, address some of our parent questions okay. that we had sent in to sure. us, and maybe we can do these together, or we yeah, could. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, I'm going to give you the tough ones if you're okay with that. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything. The first else. one was, um, and it kind of goes along with our discussion on how to build and maintain a healthy immune system. Uh, there's a lot of supplements that parents are on and um, addressing various biochemical deficiencies, but. Um, we had a parent that said, um, what's the best form of glutathione or other supplements um, to, you know, what's the best immune support in your mind? And you may, you may have a complex answer for that. So well, that's a real complex answer. <laughs> um, when it comes to glutathione, I don't think that anybody who is knowledgeable in this area would not recognize that most of these children are deficient in glutathione. And certainly a, a large amount of adults are also. The problem with glutathione is it's a um, three amino acid um, um, protein, and um, the the distressing thing about glutathione is that because it's a multi amino acid protein, it's very hard for you to put it in through the gut because the enzymes typically break it down. So then people go to various forms of uh, delivery for this, everything from inhaled to IV to transdermal etc and I'm not really sure to be honest with you um, the key is actually to get the glutathione in the body if you don't make it now obviously it'd be great if we could just make it and if we could initiate the pathway of the methionine pathway to reproduce it you know glutathione is the substance that controls toxic load and helps us produce metallothionines and deliver uh, basically naturally chelate heavy metals for excretion and help inflammatory control and immune modulate. There's a lot of things that go oh, on. Oh, it's really it. important. But, you know, the one thing about um, glutathione that I've been reading lately is there are supplements that can increase glutathione naturally, like sure. curcumin and um, what was the other one we were just talking about? Um, I'm 
drawing a blank on uh, melatonin. Absolutely. So uh, we have supplements that Jake's already on that right. have helped his glutathione. Another thing I would add to that is obviously selenium is in the process that mm-hmm. uh, tends to also drive that process. So you certainly can use those, but you also got to have the building blocks for them. But, you know, it's still when we're sit- talking about supplementation, the easiest thing is to get the whole thing in there and just supplement it. So uh, one thing I'm going to push a little bit is uh, one little delivery mechanism we're kind of excited about is out of Palo Alto, California, and it's a delivery method called the ReadySorb method. And I don't know if you know about it, but essentially um, the doctor who developed it has developed a pure soy oil, so it lacks the soy protein, so you don't have to be necessarily worried about soy sensitivity. That's good. Um, has been able to create some micro bubbles um, of soy uh, and is able to insert a proteins of different forms or vitamins of different forms into the soy bubble. And the claim to fame is that the body will then readily absorb the entire bubble as opposed to absorbing the protein inside of it. So I think that we're becoming um, much more clever in our delivery methods. And, you know, the biggest problem with most of these polymorphisms uh, or interruptions of biochemical processes is that we're not able to synthesize the things as well as we should, and so we're going to have to be more clever in our delivery methods. So um, as long as you can get the glutathione up, I'm happy. Um, is there a perfect way for everybody? The answer is no, and cost plays a role, and and biochemistry plays a role, mm-hmm. and delivery plays a role. So um, I don't know there's a perfect answer for that. I would tell you that... Um, Talking about glutathione and immune modulation, you have to be a little cautious because it's not necessarily a powerful immune modulator, meaning that you have to, it it creates an environment to let the immune system thrive. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily cause the immune system to fix itself, okay? So clearly, um, we like to improve the glutathione, but we also want to pay attention to how we modulate the T cells also. Okay, that's a great answer. I know better than I could have answered. Um, I'll actually take the next question, um, and that was one that was sent in um, and asked, uh, what type of diet that I put Jake on and how I determine what diet, because there's a lot of diets out there for parents, uh, so, you know, the GFCF, the low oxalate diet, the specific carbohydrate. Um, well, initially I will tell people that before we did any lab testing, um, and before we start seeing you, I might add, we... Um, we started him on the gluten casein-free diet because I had had parents tell me that they had a lot of success with that. And we did see improvement, um, although I will say the improvement seemed to be short-lived. So within about six months of being on the GFCF diet, we saw regression again. So at that point, um, we weren't living here in Texas, and uh, we, had, uh, we saw food. Um, sorry, we saw an allergist who did a food allergy panel and found that a lot of the things we were using in the GFCF diet, Jake was allergic to. Uh, rice, corn, soy. So uh, that was one area that really told me that you you have to do GFCF diet, but you also have to look at food allergies and intolerances. And by trial and error, we found Jake had issues with phenols. When he would eat strawberries, he would be silly and act like he was drunk and had the flush across his ears and his cheeks, and we found he was sensitive to phenols. Now, I will say, today he's not. So I have a theory that as we've healed the immune system, the phenol response has gone down because we used to have to use those enzymes for the no phenols and we, or, you know, no phenol enzyme, and we don't anymore. Um, 
And then also I think the most important thing I can tell parents before you do any testing is just get rid of the junk in your, your pantry. I know it's easy. Um, you know, I work full-time. It's easy to grab something ready-made, but we really have to look at the preservatives, the artificial colors and flavors. Um, I have now made a huge effort to have the whole family on 100% organic so that I know there's no genetically modified foods in our house. We don't have artificial colors and flavors. So that was a good starting point. Um, I do strongly believe that GFCF diet is effective, but I also think you need to look at specifically the lab biomarkers and the, the chemistries because some kids can't handle any carbohydrates. And a lot of parents will go on the GFCF and do a lot of carbs. They'll do the gluten-free cookies and the cakes and the brownies and the cereals, and then before you know it, they're not doing enough protein. Um, and I'm not definitely a diet expert. I, there's some wonderful people and parents that are experts on this, but that was how I would answer that question. Um, and then we, we um, have one more question I'd like to throw back to you, if that's all right. Okay. And that is, um, parents ask about the um, testing for amino acids or the neurotransmitters. I mean, by this point, a lot of us are familiar with the work of Jill James and the, sure. the amino acids. So um, if you could address how to best evaluate those. Wow. Well, you know, the biggest issue that you have to understand when you're testing neurotransmitters is I think that there's a lot of... Uh, very accurate testing out there available from several sources that um, will give us a pretty good feel by metabolites uh, where specific uh, neurotransmitters are um, in this, as far as quantity. Now, the problem you have to remember um, when you're checking neurotransmitters is you have to understand that they vary quite a bit from day to day, uh, sometimes hour to hour. Um, they certainly can vary with the dietary modifications. They can uh, vary according to, um, well, um, sometimes the, the weather that day, <laughs> okay? And so I don't want to seem nebulous on them. But in general, when you read those tests, whether uh, whatever uh, provider has um, ordered them from you, you want to look for general trends. And those general trends, for the most part, is looking at the state of what I call the... Um, the homeostatic balance of the neurotransmitters. So in general, what we have, the way I like to think about neurotransmitters is that we have a scale in essence. We have GABA and serotonin on one side, essentially are our good time hormones. And we have acetylcholine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine on our other side, which are more our anxiety, uh, fight or flight driving uh, hormones. And modulating it all is dopamine. Now, that's a very simplistic uh, overview of it because it becomes much more significant um, when you get into the details of it. But in general, what these kids are going to tend to have is tend to have problems with dopamine processing, which is going to drive them into more of an anxiety, uh, hypervigilant uh, type of state. And so you want to make sure that you bring up serotonin and GABA, which a lot of people will tend to do, but you also have to make dopamine come up with it. Now, here's the problem. Modulating the neurotransmitter does not mean you're going to get the effect in these kids because these kids have specific uh, enzymatic abnormalities, which are very common, like CONT, mm -hmm. polymorphisms. And for those of you that don't know, COMT is the enzyme that breaks down dopamine. Mm -hmm. And there's at least three variants that we know of, and those variants can modulate the speed with which you uh, essentially respond to dopamine and how fast you break it down. And we also have to understand that uh, different receptors uh, for different neurotransmitters do different things. And so dopamine is one of the most complicated of those. 
In fact, dopamine receptors are named by D1 through 5, but when you get to D4, which is the most important one in most of our physiology, there's actually, I think, 24 different D4 receptors. And so it depends on where it is and what you're trying to modulate. And that becomes the big issue with just saying, as a general rule, we're just going to push dopamine up because you're going to get opposite effects depending right. on what you're looking for. So with, with that being said, I think it's a great tool when you're having trouble. Now, as a general rule, if you have a child who is distractible, hyperactive, um, unfocused, um, which is what most of these kids tend to be, you have a child who, in essence, is exhibiting signs of dopamine insufficiency. Now, that does not necessarily mean that the dopamine's not there. It may mean the dopamine's not effectively working. It may mean that the body's not breaking down the dopamine as well as it should. It may mean that the receptors have been compromised. It may mean that some medicinal or antibiotic or allopathic medicine has inhibited dopamine, and we're really becoming suspicious of some of the quinolone antibiotics, mm. like Cipro and Levaquin, which are fairly common antibiotics. Right. Uh, that has a lot to do with mitochondrial function, which we could talk about. At, That's at probably nauseam. another show. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in general, neurotransmitters aren't as clean and clean cut as you would think. So our general approach to that is that we like to uh, essentially try to modulate the system by uh, assisting dopamine, not stimulating dopamine. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're certainly not advocates of placing these children on st stimulants mm -hmm. that uh, drive the dopamine. We're more about treating the source of the problem and letting the body tell us how it's feeling. But certainly when we deal with dopamine using methyl donors, things like methionine, choline, um, taurine, um, trimethylglycine, things like that will certainly give us the opportunity to make dopamine uh, more responsive for us. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of times will get you the benefit of bringing up the other neurotransmitters. So in my experience, when we recheck neurotransmitters, a lot of times if you just start supplementing with amino acids and you recheck them, you'll see them all through the roof. And mm -hmm. then you've really kind of got the system on supercharge and you're not modulating anything. Right. Okay, so you have to be, I would I would warn toward, you know, and obviously this is the neuroscientist talking to you because mm -hmm. that's my, my background, but um, you just have to be a little cautious. There's nothing wrong with checking them, and I'll tell you I check them, but... I will tell you, you also have to understand clinically what you're dealing with in the child. So that's why it's so hard to just, you can't treat a child with just tests. Mm -hmm. You have to treat the child. Right. And then you use the test to modify the clinical experience you're having, and you have to have knowledge of both. And so we really lean more toward our clinical effect, in essence, with modulation from the test to tell us how to best treat it clinically. Well, and you take a long history from us every time we come in for a visit to find out how he's been, how his behaviors have been. So you get a really thorough um, charting of that. And speaking of which, I know we're running out of time, but I want to um, tell everyone that we will update you on the next show on Jake's progress with the, uh, the strep um, and how that's coming along and the sleep issues which we've had. We'll talk about that. Uh, the topic of our next show is actually on pathogens, so we'll have a lot more detail that we can go into on um, the pathogens that attack the immune system. This is an area that Dr. Stewart is an expert, subject matter expert on, with the viruses, bacterial, parasitic, and fungal infections uh, common in our children. And I want to remind everyone that they can send us questions to email to our email address at questions at drkindlestewart.com, and selected questions will be addressed during the August broadcast. 
And with that, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Stewart. It's my pleasure, Lisa.